Good morning, church. Name is Rob. I'm one of the pastor's elders here. Happy that you're visiting with us. And a few years ago, my daughter played on an all-girls soccer team when we first moved here to the land down under. No one ever calls it that, by the way. No one ever says down under, but anyway. Um, they do? Well, I've never heard it. Um, so, Selah, my eldest, played on an all-girls soccer team. And one of the dads, um, his full-time job uh, was to look after the fields. And I remember one day he invited us and the kids to ride along on the big lawnmower, big John Deere lawnmower, which the kids were you know, thrilled about that. I was excited about it too, to be honest. And as we rode along, he showed me his technique in mowing. He pointed to visible lines in the grass and areas he'd cut in a particular way and then certain spots he'd spin around. And, and then he talked about an apprentice he had recently took on. This young man had shouted him for a while, learning the ropes, and now it was time to let this young apprentice have a go. And I'll never forget what this dad said about his young apprentice. He said, look, this guy wouldn't stop smiling as he rode on that lawnmower. He stuffed up a lot, but look, and he was really off base, but it was the right time to let him have a crack. And I walked away from that thinking, you know, that's discipleship. Really. Today in Matthew's gospel, we get to see the disciples have a crack. These 12 men have spent time watching Jesus perform miracles, hearing him preach about the kingdom, and now we'll see them do the same. The disciples will be like their master. And while this short-term mission trip we're looking at will have some particulars to it, which are specific for these 12 men, there's stacks of principles that are relevant for us today. There's so much to learn about the disciples' mission and ours. So, where we're headed, here's a roadmap for you. First, we're going to look at the individuals in verses 5 through 6, or the target. So, the individuals, the instructions in verses 7 through 13, and finally, the indictment. And verses 14 through 15. So the individuals, the instructions, and the indictment. That's where we're headed. Let's look now to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask this morning that you would bless your word as I teach it. We ask that you would open our sinful eyes that we might understand the truth of it. We ask that it would be applied to our hearts by the work of the Spirit. And we ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was talking to some of you about this passage. I wonder if you came across this text, perhaps this week, or maybe this morning, or maybe even as Josiah just read it for us, and you thought, huh? Like, it's been rather easy to follow Matthew so far. Chapters one through four, who is Jesus? Easy, right? 
chapters five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus, got it. Chapters eight through nine, the works of Jesus, nailed it. Yep, got it. Still tracking along, and then you come to today's text, and it's pretty puzzling. Like, what did you make of verses five through six? What do you make of that? Look what he says. He says, in verse five through six, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. That is non-Jews, right? Go nowhere among, that sounds pretty racist, actually, if you stop to think about it. Imagine if I said that. I'm not even going to use the example. Go nowhere among the non-Jews and enter no town of the Samaritans, the half-breeds. Another racist comment. But go rather, yes, where? Who are the individuals? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. On the surface, it seems like Jesus is forbidding his disciples to bring this message to Jews, to non-Jews, to Gentiles, correct? These are the individuals, the only people to whom they are being sent. But if that's what's happening, how do we make sense of everything we've already seen in Matthew? Do you know what I mean by that? Let's go back, don't flip there, but go back to the very beginning of the book in the genealogy. Who are the people that he lists rather quickly? Non-Jews, a part of the genealogy, correct? Rahab. Ruth, who was a Moabite. Non-Jewish people immediately list them in the genealogy. And then, who are the people that come to see and to worship the king of the Jews? Is it the Jerusalemites? No. In fact, they're disturbed along with a false king, King Herod at the time. Who are the people that get the applause? The Babylonian pagan astrologers. All the way from Babylon. If they're not Gentiles, I don't know who is. And then there's this interesting little tweet that Jesus tweets out. And he says, I haven't seen faith like anyone. No one in Israel has faith like this. And it it blows up on Twitter, even more than Trump's Twitters, right? Blows up. The whole ancient Palestine hears about it. And I haven't seen anyone with faith like this. And whose picture comes under that little tweet? It's not a rabbi. It's a Roman centurion. That's a Gentile. So... How do we make sense of this passage then in verses five through six when he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, why this exclusion of Gentiles here? Why is the target only the lost sheep of the house of Israel? I'll give you three options. Option number one, and you get to take a vote at this at the end. You're not Baptists. If you were, you would, that, was, that would be like music to your ears. You'd hear a vote and you'd go, oh, yes, we must be doing something good. Number one, 
Apparently no one's been a part of the Baptist church because you didn't get that joke. <laughs> Number one. What does he mean when he says, go only lost sheep out of Israel? Number one, it could be instructions for that moment in time. Instructions for that moment in time. In other words, this was a very narrow statement limited to this time, this place, and this particular moment in history before the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's only relevant for this window of time. Kind of like when Jesus says that it would be inappropriate for his disciples to fast while Jesus is with them. But after the bridegroom is taken away, meaning Jesus is calling up to heaven, then it would be appropriate for his disciples to fast. I say fast, fast, but you guys make fun of me. So, instructions for that moment in time. That's one option. Option two, it could be a geographic limitation. A geographic limitation. Basically, the restriction is on the area or the spot they are to visit, not on the contact they'll have with individuals. I mean, with the, these 12 blokes, the scope has to be somewhat limited. It's a short-term mission trip. This is somewhat convincing because if you stop and think for a second, where is Jesus giving this command? What, where is Jesus giving this command? What region is he in? Well, he's in Galilee which at the time was surrounded on all sides by Gentile territory except the south. You still tracking? He says, go nowhere to, okay, well, look around. Gentile territory everywhere except the south. So when Jesus says, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, it probably refers to a road leading to a Gentile city, setting the parameters, geographically speaking. Does that make sense? Now, that might be helpful, but it still doesn't answer our question. Why not? Why not go? Which leads us to our third option. This is a final warning call to the nation of Israel. A final warning call to the nation of Israel. So in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his covenant people. And Jesus comes as the Jewish Messiah in fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. God is true to his word. So before offering salvation to the Gentiles, he first comes to the Jews. Paul did the same. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile or the Greek. But here's the catch. This is the end of the line for unrepentant Israel. They can no longer bank on their Jewish roots, their Jewish ethnicity, to be citizens in God's kingdom. Which is interesting because there is going to be this increasing Jewish opposition from here on out, as we keep reading in Matthew. In fact, rejection by the Jewish audience is going to be clearly seen in next week's passage. So this is a final warning call to the nation of Israel. All right. 
Those are your options. Option one, you're going to vote. Instructions for that moment in time. <clears throat> option two, geographic limitation. Option three, final warning call. Who votes for the first option? Have a show of hands. No one. Well, okay. Option two, geographic limitation. Who's convinced by that one? Option three must be everyone unless you're asleep. And if you're asleep, you're not going to vote right now anyways because you're not hearing what I'm saying. So everyone thinks it's okay. Yeah, interesting. All right. So here, here's what I find interesting. I'm actually convinced by the third one as well. Um, because Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is the decisive turning point in salvation history. Like the dawn of a new era, as it were. Part of the whole book of Matthew, if, if you could stamp a thesis on it, is that the people of God are no longer defined by Jewish ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus Christ. I think you see that really clearly. Even from the very beginning, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people. And who are his people? The Jews only. Eh, wrong. His people, his covenant people, those that have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this gets interesting. Some people will say, and I think this is a bit of an obscure idea, but some people will say, if hearing that, hearing what I'm saying, that's anti-Semitic, that Jewish hating. Because the Jews are God's people. Have you heard that before? <clears throat> oh, the Jews are God's people. So, and in other words, to share the gospel with a Jew is anti-Semitic. That is why Luther was so anti-Semitic and Calvin and all the rest of the reformers. And so in order for you to share the gospel with one of these Jews is to be anti-Semitic because they're God's people. Is it? I, I, I reckon it's anti-Semitic not to share the gospel with a Jew. Who are God's people? In the new covenant, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, right? And so, some of you hear that and you go, yeah, 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 good, 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 good. Where are the Jewish people around here on the central coast, right? <laughs> this is like wasp land here, right? And don't say, I know one more neighbor, okay? That, we're not in Sydney. Sydney might be, you might see guys with more tassels, definitely New York City. So it's not, all I'm trying to say is, yes, the gospel goes to the Jew and the Gentile. But I think the principle I'm trying to push here is the gospel goes out indiscriminately. Does that make sense? You, you go out and you share the gospel with people that, well, maybe you wouldn't otherwise be talking with them. Maybe they're the strange people on the train. Maybe they're the strange people on the bus. Maybe you're the strange one. If you share the gospel, you'll look like the strange one. Believe me, I look somewhat normal until I open my mouth and people will do this to me. So you share the gospel indiscriminately. Go nowhere except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that is the individual's who are the target. Now, 
we see the instructions. They're given specific marching orders here. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus tells them, and proclaim, so right, and as you go, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper coins for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Isn't it interesting? This is exactly what Jesus just did, if you think about the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, what we've seen so far. Right? He preached about the kingdom. Did he not? And they, How does he start off the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Right? And then what does he do? After the Sermon on the Mount? Well, healed lepers, raised the dead, cast out demons in the following chapters. Right? Now his disciples will do the same. They'll have a message to preach and a power to display. Their mission is an extension of the Messiah. And you get the sense of the urgency there, don't you? They're to pack, pop. If you're asleep now, you're... They're to pack light, right? And they're to trust in God's provision. You see that in verse 9, what he says? He says, acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper coins for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, labor deserves wages or food. You know, it's unbelievable what some people do with the Bible. Can I, I mean, really. There are people who have interpreted this passage as a ban on missionaries raising financial support. As if Jesus says, okay, missionaries, listen up. Not just you guys, but every, every missionary from now until I return, don't you dare go on the mission field with extra clothing or any cash at all. In fact, don't even wear shoes, which might work if you're a coasty, I guess. Right? But clearly, this is, this is not a universal command Jesus is giving to missionaries. He's speaking to a particular group. Who is that? The 12th on a short-term mission trip in a specific situation. But stop for a moment and think about this. If you are one of the 12 and you were given the power to raise the dead, man, it would be tempting to make a little profit on the side. I mean, especially given the fact that you've already left everything to follow Jesus. Let's not forget that. They're not sitting in comfortable chairs with electricity beaming down on their Bibles. Like we, in the context we are now, we're reading about them. These are people that have left their source of income. Remember what Jesus said? Come and follow me. They leave their boats behind. So if you've already left your source of income and now you're able to raise the dead, hey, this could be pretty lucrative. I mean, why not, right? After all, I'm doing a good thing. I'm doing stuff for God. Why not raise a little cash on the side? And Jesus says, no, you freely receive that power. You freely give it. The disciples were sent out not to get, but to give hope. 
They were not to go out in order to make a name for themselves or to improve their own condition, but to freely offer the message of the kingdom. And shouldn't that be our motive as well? It is precisely that self-giving love that for others that says, I'm not looking for any return in this for me. I'm simply looking to give you that which is best. But it's going to cost time. It's going to cost your money. It's going to cost your energy. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be a disciple and just live your own life. You have to sacrifice. I've been encouraged at this church how many of you give your time, your money, and your energy for all kinds of ministries here, from hospitality to everyday English to flourish, so on and so forth, to the MST. If, if all of us just said, all right, we got a pastor now, he's going to do everything. Look, I'm useless to like swing a hammer. So the building's going to, we're already, yeah, anyway, the building's going to fall apart. I can't physically do everything. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> but I can't. And that's why for practical things, that's why we have MST. That's why, it, you know, poor elders, fortnightly, we meet Thursday, every Thursday night for hours praying. They have to hear me rattle on. Praying and laboring. Do you know, <laughs> I'm going to embarrass you, man. Less than a year ago, we had a men's retreat up in Nelson Bay. And I asked Andrew Linegar, hey, man, would you, mind, would you mind praying for the dinner? Oh, no, no, The dude that just prayed this money. This is a bunch of blokes, right? We're idiots, right? So it's like, you know, we probably aren't even listening half the stuff he's saying. Oh, food, oh, we can smell the food. And, and I loved it because I was like, oh, well, maybe he's not ready to pray in public yet. Maybe he's not that good of a guy. No, no, but you know, I just, so I'm sitting there going, oh, bummer. And then Ross gathers everyone together, all of us guys, and he goes, all right, guys, let's pray. Andrew, can you pray for us? <laughs> Love it. Now, that's a guy that didn't even want to pray. And brother, that prayer this morning was so encouraging, so focused on Jesus and his work on our behalf. Brother, I was tracking, I thought, honestly, we could almost go home after hearing that prayer. Like, that was fantastic. But that takes time. You know that, right? If you're going to even, like, when Andrew thinks through those prayers, he's not just, it's not random, um, let's put these quotations around it, spirit-led prayers, meaning, oh, shoot, I'm unprepared. Uh, uh. Uh, oh, this is going to be spirit-led. Uh, oh, Father God, Father God, we pray, Father God, that you bless us, Father God. Thank you, Father God, for dying on the cross for us. Oh, Father God didn't die on the cross, Andrew. What are you doing? That's heresy. But he's thinking through. He's praying during the week. He's writing that prayer out. I don't know how long that took him. But that doesn't, doesn't you don't get like that downloaded. That, like that takes time. And, and so he wants to lead us through this prayer. So that, that takes time. That takes sacrifice. That takes effort. I'm sure Lisa felt that. I'm sure there's times where, you know, he could have been helping and doing other things 
as he probably should more often, Lisa. But no, but, <laughs> but I'm sure, and, and yet you felt that sacrifice, as you do on Thursday nights when, when we meet. Do you, guys, do you guys get the point I'm making? I'll stop with Andrew, because he's probably just sinking in the back right now, right? So, <laughs> we, it, there has to be an amount of giving. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you know, are you familiar with that expression? Yeah, okay. But why would you do that? You, you would do that not because you want to be a part of something, not because you feel guilty, but because the Lord has genuinely saved you and it is a joy to serve him. All right? So, the disciples' mission and ours should be marked by preaching, by generosity, by discernment, I'd say as well. Look at verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. It's interesting, isn't it? They're looking for someone who has a reputation of being hospitable, probably a leader in that community, hence the worthy person. And if he really is a man who has this kind of respect, then he'll prove it by showing his hospitality. In verse 12, As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So, interesting words here. You see that there? If the house is worthy. And he talks about greeting, first of all. Greeting comes in the name of the one who sent them. But the wording there, if the house is worthy, this refers to the person or household, not the building. If it's not worthy, then give it your peace. But if, but sorry, if it is worthy, give it your peace. But if it's not, take your peace back. Again, the worthiness here is not the architecture or the engineering. It's worthy in terms of the household or family and how they'll respond to the message. Remember, they're coming preaching a message. So it's not like they're coming into a house and they go, ooh, I sense the boogeyman's in this house. Boogeyman's in this house. No, no, no. They are coming to a person, an individual who has a soul, and they're preaching a message. And given how that person is going to respond to that message, there's going to be a blessing or a curse. Look at verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you listen, or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Interesting. You see, this isn't just about hospitality. It's about ambassadors who will share a message. It's a message that the kingdom has come. And if they receive the message, they'll prove that they're part of this kingdom. They are citizens in the kingdom. Whereas if they reject it, they'll prove that they're not. And if they reject it, now comes our final point, the indictment. Or meaning judgment. Indictment's just fun to say. Anyway. I'm being indicted. Anyway. Sorry. Movie. Jim Carrey. Matthew 10, 
Verse 15, look again. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. But he tells them, though, that they're supposed to do something. Shake the dust off your feet. Very peculiar to us, but when a Jew took a journey outside the promised land, when they went into Gentile territory, before they entered back in, back in the promised land, they would shake the dust off their feet so they would not bring pagan soil into the holy land. Jesus tells his disciples to do the same, but with fellow Jews. Did you catch that? You picture a Jew heading out for business, leaving the promised land. He's got dust on his feet. He comes back right as he's entering back into the gates, as it were. <sighs> Shakes the dust off his feet. Which is an exp- it's not just an expression of frustration. Do you understand that? This is a calculated insult. It's saying, I am so disgusted by this place that I don't even want to take any dirt with me to contaminate this next spot. I'm going to shake the dust off my feet because you people have behaved so wickedly to bring such disgrace upon your house and your village that I do not even want to take the dust from my feet, your dust, to this next place. But he's not talking about Gentiles, is he? Remember? Who is he talking to? Jews. <laughs> he says, treat them like you would the Gentiles. Because they're proving that they're not part of the kingdom. When we read this, friends, we need to feel the gravity of the message that Jesus entrusted to his disciples. It divides the world, doesn't it? Into those who accept him and those who reject him. And there are consequences for how people to respond to the kingdom. Those that receive the message will understand that history at this point is really being divided. The people of God are no longer defined by Jewish ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus. And so too, if you're a Christian, you know that you no longer are your own, that you've been bought with a price. You know, you know that your mission, as it were, is to share the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it may cost you some friendships. It may cost you a job promotion. For some of you, it'll cost you a partner. But Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting next week, we're going to see the persecution that comes from preaching this message of the kingdom. In a first world, western world, we can gather here and it's safe for now. But there will come a day, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, where it won't be that comfortable. Look, there's going to be things in your life now that if you, really, if you really say, I don't want to do this, everything in my flesh says not to do, that, to do this. However, because the Bible forbids it, I'm going to flee from it. People will think that you're an ascetic. People will say that you don't have enough freedom, that you're being brainwashed by this church or whatever else. Jesus says you're my disciple. 
You're truly my follower. That's the disciples' mission, and that's our mission. Let's pray. Father, as we do go out as ambassadors, as your ambassadors, and preach the good news of the gospel, as we make choices and potentially make them to sacrifice even friendships at points, Lord, would you strengthen us? We know that you go before us. And we pray that we would be faithful to you even when the world uh, cannot stand the light. Help us to look at this model of the disciples and to trust you that you would provide for us, that we would be discerning, that we'd be generous, Lord, that we'd be true kingdom ambassadors. In this day and age, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.